Welcome to the Business Sense with Brad podcast, where we talk about trends that impact businesses and nonprofit corporations. For more information, go to businesssensewithbrad.com. At a time where labor participation is at an all-time low, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, don't you need a resource that will help you motivate your workers or perhaps even yourself? Check out the Motivated Worker book written by yours truly, Brad Ward. It's available at Amazon, Bookshop, or McFarland. This book is double-blind peer-reviewed, but yet written in a clear and concise way so you can make your workforce happier and more engaged today. All right, on today's episode, uh, we have Dr. Bill Greer, who wrote his dissertation and a book on Frank Knight, who is a Milligan alum. The name of the book is Uncertainty, the Ethical Basis for the Economic Theories of Frank H. Knight and John M. Keynes. So without further ado, here is Dr. Greer, and we're going to talk about who exactly was Frank Knight. So if you want to get us started, go ahead and introduce yourself, and then uh, we can go right into who is Frank Knight. All right. Well, Dr. Ward, shall I call you Dr. Ward or Brad? Brad's fine. Brad, uh, thanks for having me here today. Uh, This is uh, being uh, recorded the day before Thanksgiving break, so it's getting pretty thin around here. People are bailing, so it's kind of nice to have something like this to do to talk about been a long time since I talked about Frank Knight. Anyway, you said to introduce myself. I'm Bill Greer. I'm the president of Milligan University, which is the alma mater of Frank Knight, which makes it kind of cool to talk about him. He graduated in 1911, so it's been a few minutes. So Frank Knight graduated in 1911, and let's go into just generally speaking economics-wise, who would have been around at that time, and then let's go into some of his economic, just, you know, we'll talk about his economic theories versus other, and why is he notable? Yeah, he he is, uh, Frank Frank Knight, just as as a broad brush background, is regarded as one of the most significant American economists of the 20th century. Um before we talk maybe about other people who were around him, uh, just to give you a sense, he came, he came to Milligan from a little school in, uh, in also in East Tennessee, American university that actually closed while he was there. Uh, he came from Illinois to this American university or American, I think it was called American university. And I believe it was in La Follette, Tennessee, which is way out there. Um, in East Tennessee, up toward the Kentucky border. And he was there at the same time. Their president at the time was Frederick Kirshner. And he's a good subject for another day, but he was he, he ended up being quite an academician and administrator. He came to Milligan and became the president after the closure of American University, which kind of puzzles me when I think about the history of one school hiring the president of one that went out of business. But at any rate, Frederick Kirshner came to Milligan and a lot of students followed him. They At that time, a lot of presidents had kind of followings of students and, and our own founder, Josephus Hopwood, he, he was actually released from Milligan. That's another story for another day. Uh, after he founded the school and was president for a long time, he moved to Virginia and a lot of students and faculty went with him. So that just seemed to be something that happened a lot. But at any rate, that school closed, and Frank Knight followed Frederick Kirshner to Milligan. Frederick Kirshner, the reason I mention him, is because they, they 
maintained quite a lot of correspondence throughout the rest of their lives. And Frederick Kirshner was president at Milligan for just a very few years, and then he became president of Texas Christian University. So he he just moved on into you know ranks of of larger schools and of course football powerhouses nowadays maybe not at the time but at any rate uh, I, I I thought your listeners might be interested in that sort of sort of that that background uh, but Knight finished his bachelor's degree here in 1911 went over to University of Tennessee Knoxville did a master's degree. Ended up at Cornell University, where he did a Ph.D. in economics, and then ended up at the University of Chicago, which early on was working to establish itself as an economic center. And uh, so he and some folks like George Stigler and others uh, were influential in establishing what has become known as the Chicago School of Economics. So that's sort of his path through Milligan, and um, he met his wife here at Milligan and uh, his first wife, and uh, again, ultimately ended up at, at Chicago, where he was super influential in establishing what became known as the Chicago School of Economics, which I think we'll keep talking more about. All right, so you mentioned the Chicago School, and I know you can divide or subdivide all of these different schools of economic thought. I would say they're on a continuum from left to right. The far left would be government controlling everything and distributing or what have you, and the far right would be total anarchy. I don't know if I'm saying that right, but where, so if you're talking about the Chicago school, where would it fall and how would it compare to the other major schools? Yeah. In in history of economic thought, we, we talk about Marxism. It, It isn't really embraced too much, obviously, in the United States as as a legitimate school of economic thought, but but it, certainly for comparative purposes, we talk about it a lot, and the degree to which uh, the government plays a significant role in uh, not just influencing the economy, but in actually controlling it, and uh, all of the central planning that that goes along with with uh, communist governments, of which China and North Korea are kind of the the, the ones left, uh, I suppose. Uh, since the the Soviet Union dissolved, but um, the Chicago School would be on the other end of that spectrum. It it would not be anarchy, of course, but it would argue for a limited role for government, and that was Knight's premise. I mean, his, his a lot of his theory uh, revolved around arguing for less government control and more individual freedom. Uh, both uh, both of individual consumers and businesses to to make decisions for themselves um, the, the and in between that would be the Keynesian school of economic thought and my my book and my dissertation work revolved around comparing and contrasting Knight and Keynes particularly as it as it related to the way they inserted the notion of uncertainty into their economic thinking Keynes believed that uncertainty could be the the impact of uncertainty could be minimized or smoothed if you will by the government the government could step in and and influence consumer behavior in various ways through taxing and reallocating uh, income and and so forth whereas knight um, would argue that profits should should go to those individuals and those businesses who are the most adept at navigating uncertainty, 
the ones who use data the, the best and, and analyze the, the best and make predictions the best. Perhaps there's some luck involved in, on occasion in that, but overall he would argue that that good use of data and good analysis and good thinking um, helps people to navigate risk and uncertainty and profit is the reward to those entrepreneurs. He was very big on entrepreneurship and entrepreneurial impact in the economy. So that was a legitimate, valid reward to those people who are most able to navigate uncertainty the best. And he thought that would best happen when the government played a minimal role in regulating the economy. Yeah. And so if I get the definitions right, risk would be you know the probability or you have a probability of something happen. You're going to take the risk to, you know, risk to start a business or something in that environment where uncertainty, you wouldn't know the odds of something happening. Am I getting those definitions right? Yeah, you are. You are. I think those are, I mean, you can, you can kind of slice and dice those definitions a lot, but uncertainty at, at the end of the day, it just means that we just don't know. We don't know that the future may or may not be like the past. Uh, whereas with risk, um, we can we can use some analysis, we can use some statistical prediction based on the past to predict the future. And in fact, there's a lot of argument. That's where that's where the notion of insurance comes in. You can in, you can insure against risk. It's more difficult to insure against pure uncertainty. All right. So, and then there's also to the farthest right, if you will, if we're going to use the four, say Mark's on the farthest left, then Keynes moving right, then would be Chicago school and then Austrian school on the farthest to the right. They focus mostly on subjective value, I believe. So the consumer or the demand side would predict prices. I don't know if I would say to an extreme level where on the far left side, you would have the supply side. Is there, I guess, could you explain how that relates to our supply and demand graphs too? Well, now you're getting, now you're getting into the weeds at a little, uh, uh, but let me say b- b- about generally about the Austrian school. Hayek is probably the most notable from a historical perspective, Austrian economist, and he and Keynes went back and forth quite, quite a lot. And, and Hayek would have been among those who would have argued that it's consumer behavior and it's it's the individual decisions that are being made that, that drive the relationship between supply and demand to the point where you can arrive at an equilibrium price. Now, he regarded Knight as the most significant figure in the 20th century when it came to perpetuating the notions of classical free market economics. So he held Knight in extremely high regard. And um, so they they shared that notion that it was a demand side that was the dominant part of the equation as opposed to Knight, or I'm sorry, Keynes on the supply side. And the supply side just simply means that if you can, if, if we could, if we, if the government can spend enough money and force demand to, well, not force, I guess we should, we should uh, put people to work doing work public works projects and and things like that then then there'll be this inflow of funds into the economy that would buoy the buoy the economy and Knight and Hayek saw that as kind of a dead end because you can't rely on the central government's purse if you will uh, which is something also that um, other other folks at Margaret Thatcher 
you know, so we can't continue to rely on the per, the treasury's purse to keep the economy going. We have to we have to help people make good decisions and and make their own independent decisions. And so those those were the arguments of the Austrian school, which is maybe a little more farther right than Chicago, but uh, but they're very similar, based based very much on the same precepts. So if I'm thinking about the price of a house. Generally speaking, the the right side, I guess, or the Austrians would say it's whatever someone's willing to pay for the house. That's what should determine the value. On the left side, if you will, they would say, well, no, it's the labor that was put into it or the cost of goods or what have you. And of course, there would be some kind of intersection of those. That's pretty much where the, would that be where the Chicago school would land, but more on the consumers driven side? It, well, Chicago would, would definitely land more on the the consumer side and less on the labor theory of value side. The, the, the ultimate extreme of labor theory of value is in the Marxist realm. And uh, Marx had a very, very well-defined um, and talked a lot about the labor theory of value and that it's, it is the value of the, the, the work that, that goes into the product that, that drives its value, which I think you still hear some argument to that effect. But I think the majority of people have concluded that it's less about the value of the, the labor that goes into a product and more about the demand for that product or service. Um, there's an interesting debate happened in, just locally a few years ago. A neighboring city to, to Johnson City was a little upset that there were, there were more half-million-dollar homes in Johnson City, and they were lamenting the fact that they can't recruit young executives and, and folks into this neighboring town. I'm, I'm, I'm avoiding naming it because they didn't have enough half million dollar houses. They, they, they felt like they needed larger, nicer homes than were available in the market. So the city actually moved toward investing in creating, you know, in building more half million dollar homes, thinking that if we just build them, someone will want them forgetting that there are all kinds of variables about why people live where they live. And it's not up to a government entity to make that determination. It's up to individuals who want to make those decisions for themselves. So I found that to be a beautiful example of why that's not a well-founded notion. Well, yeah, and I would liken it to like a movie. Imagine I uh, decide to make a movie and it's awful, it, but we have all this labor in it. If nobody wants to watch the movie, it's basically worthless, even though if my labor has value to it. So I think there has to be a demand or what the consumer at the end of the day will pay for something. You can't just say, well, something's worth it because somebody put in the work. All right, so when I go to YouTube, which is where I do all of my research... <laughs> Uh, yeah, so yeah, YouTube, Wikipedia. Anyway, uh, when I go to YouTube and do my research, uh, I, I'll find all kinds of videos on Milton Friedman, but hardly any on Frank Knight. Now, of course, some of this is Frank Knight as a predecessor, if you will, or a contemporary, but earlier. But why would uh, Milton Friedman, I guess, why is he so much more, I'd say, popular in the public sphere versus Frank Knight? And what kind of relationship or impact did Knight have on Milton Friedman? Good question. Uh, Frank Knight was the professor of at least three Nobel Prize winners for economics. Maybe four, but I've lost the fourth one to the fog of my memory. But um, 
I mentioned George Stigler a bit ago. He he is a Nobel Prize winner. James Buchanan, uh, who is a big public choice guy, and uh, was it professor at George Mason, where our own David Campbell came from, and then he was also the the professor of Milton Friedman. So Frank Knight was an academic. He was an economist. He was dry as a bone. So and he and he worked and taught at a time when you didn't have the popular media chasing quotes from economists. Um, Milton Friedman, though, after being in classes with Frank Knight, did become very powerful. He became a very influential political advisor and was very in, instrumental in helping navigate the United States out of uh, you know tough economic times in the 70s and 80s and um, he, he just became a very well-known popular probably one of if when you think about economists of the 20th century he comes to mind as quickly as anyone if if not way more than anyone um, because he was just so quoted in the news and so active in um, helping the the American economy out of difficult time. Um, but that is by no means, and, and I think he would he would say himself, that's not to minimize the role that Frank Knight had because he shaped the thoughts of all of these guys, Milton Friedman and Stigler and James Buchanan. Um, I was privileged to to go to a colloquium representing representing Milligan and my research at the time. A colloquium, colloquium was done, held in Richmond, Virginia, by the Liberty Fund, uh, which is a foundation that promotes the underlying precepts of free market economics and, and capitalism. And so they had brought in the world's authorities on Frank Knight, and I was honored to be included in that list. Uh, but one of those folks there was James Buchanan. And uh, so it was an honor to be able to meet him and, and uh, interact with him a bit, hear some conversation about the influence of of Knight um, on them. Knight was um, super opinionated, kind of a curmudgeonly guy who uh, just he liked to argue and debate and get into get into the the ring with with people over these issues. And um, they looked to him as as the most significant influence on their thinking, which of course in turn became three Nobel Prize winners in economics. All right, and one popular economist that's still around, uh, super old now, is Thomas Sowell. Has he been an influence on him uh, that you're aware of? I see, like especially on social media, I see today see Thomas Sowell quotes like all of the time. Would he have been of that school, or uh, would he have been influenced by Knight? I don't know the answer to that question. <laughs> Random question. I, I think any anyone who is is representative of the Chicago school, I don't know any of them who would deny influence by by night on them. So I'm sure that's the case here too. All right, let's go into criticisms, especially with economists, it's always easy to criticize. And so with Frank Knight, Milton Friedman, I remember there was a quote by Friedman, the only re social responsibility of a business is to increase its profits. And I know we're in a social responsibility world. So I would say one of the criticisms would be, wait a second, in the Chicago school, you might be, and I don't know if I'm tying too much together here, but uh, one of the criticisms might be, well, if you're just following the law and focusing on profitability, 
that can have disastrous outcomes. Would you have, I guess that would be one of the main criticisms. Are you aware of, or I guess, how would you address that? And then what are some other popular criticisms out there? Yeah, I mean, I think that's, especially today, it's an increasing, increasingly common criticism. I think, in like with all things, moderation and fairness and, and, and all are, are much much debated and, and where companies and individuals need to land, how much wealth is enough you know, is, is often asked, but I, you know, I would, I would even look at, um, the Warren Buffett's of the world and Bezos and some of these folks who have, who have indicated pretty clearly and, and have demonstrated and Bill Gates is another that they intend to distribute and want to distribute a lot of their wealth. I think, I think companies have to be careful about peering too, too greedy, too anxious to to just have unlimited profits. Milton Friedman would say, though, that, that a corporation's primary responsibility is to its shareholders. Um, shareholders invest into the, into the organization with the expectation that they're going to have a fair return. And I think that therein, therein lies part of the issue, what is fair. Um, what is, how, much, how big does it get before it's not fair anymore? Uh, and certainly, I think the best long-term companies are the ones, though, who do have a goal of a fair profit, but who also take really good care of their team of people. Uh, they have to consider the importance and the, the concerns of all of their stakeholders, not just stockholders, but their stakeholders, which include the community they're in, the people who work for them, their, their families, partner organizations, whether it's suppliers, vendors, people down the line who, who benefit from their products. The better you take care of everyone, the greater the likelihood that you're going to have long-term viability and health. And so inherently, I think companies, good companies, have to be concerned about more than just profit and more than just creating shareholder value. Although I would argue that a fair, healthy profit over the long term, at the same, if you, if you also take care of those around you and your stakeholders, means that the shareholder value is going to just grow, grow, grow over time. And I think that's what we've seen with Warren Buffett's companies. Uh, he's had just phenomenal returns just from from good management and companies that take care of people. And he's in a position to be very, very, very generous. Uh, I continue to argue that the best way to solve the the world's poverty problem isn't to redistribute wealth everywhere or create some sort of artificial equity, but to help people in other countries and developing countries be productive and to make good decisions regarding their, their business lives and, and community lives. But for companies to be able to operate well and free as freely as possible on a global scale generates wealth for communities all around the world and i think i think that philosophy that isn't necessarily something that chicago school was overtly trying to do in terms of freeing the creativity that god has endowed us all with uh, i think that really is the main outcome the main outcome of a free market economy is that people can be creative and they can use the talents that God has given them freely and in ways that that can never happen when their abilities are constrained by government influence. So uh, I guess back to your back to your main main question, I think a well-run company that 
it, obviously we have laws to abide by and, and ethics and morality, and all of those have to be, const- be constraints that we ought to freely and happily work within. I think global economic health and welfare is maximized in, in what the Chicago School would argue, uh, argue for, and that is the freest possible kind of economic systems. Yeah, you didn't ask, but one thing that that he he's kind of pointed to that that he you came to he came to Milligan Christian institution, but that didn't stick. You know, it's like his his like he lost his faith somewhere along the line. Uh, in fact, I think Wikipedia claims he's he became an atheist. I think that's a bit harsh. Uh, I I think though that he had trouble with he, he was frequently critical of organized religion. Not a faith in God per se, but in the way that churches would organize themselves and influence thinking, and and and, and the, he themselves, I think that's an extension of his criticism of government. He he viewed that a lot of denominational organizations ma- were managed in the same way, and therefore he didn't have a lot of patience for them. All right, so moving forward, what impact do you think that Frank Knight uh, legacy-wise will have on Milligan University? One of the things that we that we did that Milligan does every two or three years is nominate someone to be in the Takua Hall of Fame. The Takua Hall of Fame is the Tennessee Independent College and University Association Hall of Fame. Takua is the association of all of the private universities and colleges in the state. There's about 30-ish of them. And so the Hall of Fame is designated, was set aside a couple of years ago for institutions to place either living or deceased uh, an alum into the Hall of Fame. And two years ago, we placed Del Harris, our famous athlete, um, NBA basketball coach, went into the Takua Hall of Fame. But this year, Frank Knight went into the Hall of Fame, so I was happy to uh, to be able to make that nomination and to share a little bit about his um, his work, which we haven't mentioned his most significant work, and I probably should. His most important work was published in 1921, called Risk, Uncertainty, and Profit, and in that book he he recognized the existence of uncertainty in economic decision making. He distinguished it from risk. We've already talked a little bit about that, but all of that rolled into his what his articulation of the classical free market model. And as I as I said, it it was the presence of uncertainty in navigating risk that brought about the possibility of of profit. And he viewed that as a, as absolutely an essential outcome for increasing economic welfare. Uh, and that became the underlying basis of everything everything that he did. And his influence on all of these other individuals that we've that we've talked about, and uh, it just really can't be can't be overstated. So we're we're happy that he's now in the Takua Hall of Fame. All right, Doctor Gray. Well, thanks for coming on and talking about the influence of Frank Knight. Thanks for having me on here. Uh, he's one of he's one of the unsung heroes. You know, he's uh, he's uh, been he passed away in the '60s, so he's been gone a long time. And uh, uh, but we did used to have we used to have the Frank Knight Chair. Of, of business and economics, I believe it was called, that Gene Price held uh, un, until he passed away. 
And uh, I believe it was funded by uh, a local church, congregation, some individuals who funded that chair. And uh, one of the things that we would we would like to do is explore the possibility of resurrecting the, the Frank Knight name here at Milligan, uh, because certainly he, he is without doubt one of the most significant graduates ever of, of Milligan College then, Milligan University now. And uh, I think I think the fact that so many of our business faculty and a lot of our underlying teaching really does promote some of the same values of, of free markets and individual freedoms, then I'm, I'm hopeful that we can, as I say, resurrect his name and, and uh, do some good work uh, under the Frank Knight name. That concludes our episode. And if you'd like a non-financial way to really help the podcast move forward, I ask that you subscribe both to the YouTube channel, Business Sense with Brad, and on there I promote the short versions of these episodes, and then also subscribe on your favorite podcast app.